Uh, We're going to be praying this morning for the Yazidi people in Iraq, 487,000 people in Iraq throughout the world, 650,000, a a, a smaller group of people which which follow uh, what what you could call a a creative religion. They've kind of pieced things together uh, from a bunch of different um, from a bunch of different traditions, uh, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, and also uh, Zoroastrianism, which you may have never heard of before, uh, which is the worship of sun and fire. Um, and, and, and interestingly, uh, they are from uh, Iraq and they're uh, descended from Zoroastrians. These might be the descendants of the people that we know in the New Testament as the Magi. Interesting. Um, that's possible because many people, many scholars, I should say, some scholars uh, believe that, that, the, that the Magi were Zoroastrians who had read Daniel's prophecy, prophecies. Um, they are completely unreached, though the Bible is in their language. So what we need is for the Lord to send missionaries. Uh, we're going to read and then we're going to pray. Um, let's, let's read God's word. It says in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram, Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know it. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, 
let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak true and necessary and good things to us in your word. We know that apart from your word and apart from your truth, that we can, as it has already been said this morning, do nothing. We thank you that, that your word is the creator of faith in us by the power of the Holy Spirit working in it. And so we pray that as we hear your word proclaimed, as we, as we hear truth proclaimed, and as we believe that truth by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would transform us and do the work that you desire, conforming us to the image of Christ in our hearts, Lord. And this means that in areas where your word challenges our sense of righteousness and goodness and truth, we, by your grace, must bend to your way of looking at things. And this will be difficult, for often believing and standing on the truth will mean that there will be those who will say that, that we are cruel, that we are hateful, that we don't represent the God of the Bible or the teachings of Christ. But Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that we would be those who, like Abraham, hearing what you say, will admit that we truly are dust and ashes and standing in the presence of the holy God who creates the universe, have no choice but to appeal to you and say that we believe that you are right and that you are good and that you will do what is just. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask you to teach us. We pray that you will instruct us in the way that's right and that you will change and transform our hearts. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, in truth, who has not surrendered to you, who has not repented, and who has not believed, I pray that they would hear your word and that they would find joy and delight in the truth and not in the idolatry of creating God in their own image, and that they would repent and believe and surrender. And we pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe you've had the experience of, uh, of, of suddenly realizing that you are in the know. Uh, that, that, that you understand or know something that, that, that just a few minutes ago you, you did not know and that now you are in a, uh, in, a, in a select group of people who know something. I had lunch with my friends uh, Reed and, and, and Doug a couple weeks ago and, uh, and it was just, hey, let's get together, let's get some coffee and it wasn't one of these, one of these uh, lunch experiences, maybe you've had this before, maybe lunch or dinner or, or a meeting where everything seems to be going well and then you get to the real reason why you're, why you're together and it's, it's bad news for you and you can, you can feel the boot coming down on you, maybe you've 
You've had that experience, right? Here is your pink slip. You're being fired. You're being let go. And it seemed like everything was just great five seconds ago. Um, but, but there's a kind of a, kind of a joyful or a, uh, a thrilling experience to, to, to learn information that not everybody knows. And suddenly you are in the know. You've got, you've got, you've got something that you, you didn't know five seconds ago, but now you're responsible for that information and you can, you can truly and honestly be part of a team and, and, and help. Uh, so I'm eating uh, lunch with my friends Reed and Doug and they say, we've got to go to a meeting at, at 1.30 with, with such and such people. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. What's, what's going on there? And they tell me, well, you know, here this organization is, is struggling in this way and we're going to come alongside it. And, uh, and suddenly I know how to pray differently for these, these people that they're going to meet with. I, I know something, and, and the responsibility then becomes, will I pray or will I just be like, oh, you know, our church is here and that church is, is here, right? And we're better. You know, is, is, is being in the know, is that, is that something that's designed to help our self-esteem or our self-worth or, or give us a standard of our own superiority that we might judge others? Or... Should it move us to devotion and to prayer and to intercession and to, to, the, to responsible action on behalf of others? Um, something happens in Genesis 18. We talked about this last week. Uh, Abraham is sitting in the, in, the, in the shade of his tent in the cool of the day. And he sees these three men. And they, and they come after he, he appeals to them, don't, don't pass me by, come stay a while, refresh yourself. And, and much preparation uh, happens in order to, to provide a good meal for them. Somebody asked, by the way, last week, why, why does Abraham, who has this vast kind of, of empire of servants, right? why does he run to his wife and, and say, hey, Sarah, make cakes? Like, isn't there somebody who makes cakes? In that, in that household, and I said the answer is, is not, you know, that, that Abraham is not properly staffing Sarah. It's probably just that Sarah makes the best cakes, right? You know, I mean, you get the best person to do the job. Anyway, um, that's just kind of an aside. That's the way I see it. It's like Sarah's flatbread must have been awesome. There's no, there's no compare. You know, her recipe has, has been handed down uh, through generations, but is lost to us today. It'd be awesome if, if, if we could find the recipe somewhere out there on the internet, perhaps on a scrap of papyrus. Anyway, um, if you see it, you will know that somebody had an idea, and now it's a forgery. Anyway, um, so he draws these men in, and he says, sit, rest a while, enjoy, spend, spend some time with me. And then there is this... this opportune moment where, where the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to come back in a year. I'm going to, I'm going to visit with you again and, and you're going to have a, a baby boy. And Abraham believes and Sarah scoffs and laughs. And the, the story kind of ends there for us last week. But as the, the men finish their meal, as they, as they kind of end the time with Abraham, they, they get up, brush off their clothes, thank you, thank you for feeding us, thank you for your hospitality. They begin to, to, 
to walk off. And Abraham, being a good host, is going to see them at least as far of the, the gate of the property, right? You know, that's what polite people do. They, they show their friends to the door. They turn on the light. They, they help them to their car if they need, they need help, you know? So, so Abraham's walking with them, and the, they, they head out, and they look down towards Sodom. You'll recall that Abraham rejected uh, the help or allegiances or alliances with the king of Sodom when he rescued Lot. But Lot chose to be near Sodom. He pitched his tents near Sodom and he has moved into Sodom by this time. And, and so, so they're, they're walking out. If you've got a map in the back of your Bible, you can, you can look at this. Um, and, and from where Abraham is at the Oaks of Mamre, it's about a 20-mile walk to the Dead Sea. I don't think he went that far, but I, I think that he was, he was walking and kind of moving. Uh, they're moving away from where Abraham is settled. And so maybe they go to the crest of a ridge and they stand. And from there, you can look out like maybe 10 miles of plain. And then you can see this, this body of water. At that point, is maybe four or five miles thick. And then two or three miles inland is the, the location of the city of Sodom. And they stand there and they look. This is probably right about where Abraham would say, good journey, you know, and they would, they would hug or whatever they would do. And he would, he would head back to his tent. But the Lord says to him, should I hide from you what's about to happen? Should I... Should I share with you what I'm, what I'm going to do? We're, we're, we're not just here to visit you. We're here for another purpose. There's, there's something that's going to happen now. We have another appointment on our, on our calendar. We've got we've to go and take care of business. Should I share it with you? Well, the Lord is going to share it with him, and, and he gives the rationale for why he's going to do it. Should I, should I share it with you? You're going to become, Abraham, I've promised this to you now, over and over, you're going to become a great and mighty nation. You're going to bless all nations as you become that nation. A blessing is going to, to come from you. What's, what's going on here? You'll, re, you'll remember that when... when Abraham defeats the, uh, the, the, the kings when he goes and he rescues Lot, that he is then hailed by Melchizedek, king of Salem or Jerusalem. He is also approached by the king of Sodom and he's viewed as a, a head of state. He's a, he's a traveler. He lives in tents. He's not building a city-state, this, this like agrarian kind of settlement. But Abraham is viewed as a man of power and influence. And I believe that the Lord knowing that one day he will be a great and mighty nation, even though he does not yet have the, the, the promised child, is treating him as a head of state. Isn't this interesting? There is no equality of being here. There's, there's no parallel here between the two of them. God is infinite infinitely holy, infinitely pure, infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable. He's, he's at this moment sustaining the entire creation by his power, and yet he's here talking to an individual as if they are on the same level. Uh, God condescends to speak to humanity. What a blessing. 
Imagine the thoughts that are going through God's head, right? You've seen movies maybe where somebody is writing all these enormous equations on a board and they're like trying to figure out how gravity works or how light works or something. There's all these, these, these calculations that they're working through in order to understand things. This is like, that's what God's brain is like probably, but like thousands upon billions upon millions of boards of calculations. And it's all happening every second. He's, he knows, right? Scientists are like, oh, we found this massive black hole out somewhere in space and everything out in space in that area is being sucked into it. God knew that was there. He knows the name of every speck of dust and molecule on everything in that system and everything else that exists in the universe. And he knows it all the time. And he knows how many hairs are on the heads of every person in this room, and he knows how many hairs I'm going to lose by the time this sermon is over. Like, he knows that. (laughs) He knows everything. And yet he's here talking to Abraham. A gracious explanation from a superior to an inferior. Think about this. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, the word, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down here and ate and slept and laughed and enjoyed and, and knew. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus, when he comes to speak to his disciples, he'll pray for all those who would believe in him in John chapter 17. When he comes and he speaks to his disciples, he says, I don't treat you as servants. I'm not treating you as second class beings to myself. I'm telling you all that I know. I'm teaching you everything. Slaves don't know what their masters are doing. Masters say, do this, and slaves say, okay. But I call you friends. Friends with God? Friends with God. Friends with with a being who understands exactly what's going on on the surface of the sun at every moment and who understands the rotations of planets, and who looks at our science and our, all of our human endeavors and says, man, there's a ton of stuff they don't know yet. Like, we, we, we think we're so powerful because we've invented all these things and we've got all this technology filled out, but it's like there are probably hundreds of errors in our calculations, and God knows what they all are. He knows. And yet, he seeks to be friends with humanity. He comes and condescends and speaks. What tremendous graciousness God has. What tremendous kindness. We'll see more of his kindness in just a few moments. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham will be a great nation, and a great nation needs to understand history and know what's happening around. What's going to happen is going to be a momentous great event. 
And Abraham will know about it beforehand and will know what it means. Right? When, when great events happen, when, when the stock market crashes or, or, uh, or our country is attacked or a war is declared, people will say, well, what does this mean? And we've got to figure it out. You know, the, the tough thing about history, somebody has said, is that, is that we are not able to wait for the historians to write it as we're living through it. We don't necessarily know the implications of, of what's happening right now in the world. But God tells Abraham, this is going to happen. This is what it means. And he will know what it means when it happens. Okay? A great nation needs to learn from that history. All nations are going to be blessed in Abraham. And God has called Abraham to himself to walk in righteousness and justice. And so Abraham needs to look at what's going to happen before him. And to say, that's the way of the Lord. This, this is what, what happens to those who do not walk in the way of the Lord. Therefore, I must avoid doing that. Also, Abraham's calling, his, his election to this purpose is purpose-driven. His, his point is to keep the way of the Lord. His, his goal is to walk in the way in which the Lord has, has commanded him. And so the Lord gives him this awareness again. He points out that I've called you for this specific purpose, to raise up a house of people who, who walk in righteousness and justice. You're not chosen, Abraham, because you are special or different or exceptional. You're not more moral than other people, but I've chosen you and called you to myself, and I've chosen you to be holy and to live holy. The how is another matter, by the way. And the how, the how to live holy is going to be worked out from Genesis 18, from this point, or actually Genesis 12, where we, we first see that call, all the way up to the New Testament. This is the story of the whole Bible, is, is how do we walk in holiness and justice? And so he tells Abraham, he says, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to go do. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that has come to them. And if not, I will know. Remember now, he's just said, Abraham, I've called you to myself. I've called you to me that you might keep the way of the Lord, that you might walk in justice and righteousness, that you would walk in a way that is pleasing to me. But I've heard things about this city. I've heard accusations against Sodom. People have, have been victimized by them or taken advantage. There, there are prayers going up to heaven, streaming towards the Lord about this wickedness or that wickedness or this person taking advantage of that one or, or this sin being committed. And those accusations rise up to the Lord and he says, I've heard accusations and I've observed their actions. I've seen their sinfulness and so I'm going down to inspect it. This too is graciousness, by the way. We might think of judgment as being non-gracious, but this demonstrates the grace of God as well. I'll talk about that in just a second. This is what happens at the flood in Genesis chapter 6. This isn't something new. The Lord, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He, he, he sees the condition of the heart and then he sees the actions of humanity. 
And so the Lord decided to blot out man who he created from the face of the earth. Genesis 6, 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God created humanity to walk in his ways, to live lives of justice and righteousness, and to fill the earth with God's image. But humanity filled the earth not with the, the perfect image of God, but with the fractured, broken image of God, filled with sin, and the earth now is filled with wickedness and violence. It's corrupt. Genesis 6.12 says, For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God says to Noah, Behold, I will destroy humanity with the earth. This is also what happens just a couple chapters later in the story of the teeny tiny tower. You remember that? Humanity says, We're going to build a teeny tiny tower! And exalt ourselves, right? And they, and they gather bricks and they, they come together and they start building this massive work. And what does it say? It says that God comes down out of heaven to inspect it. And people are like, does God have to come down out of heaven to, to inspect things? Is that the way God works? No, God knows what's happening all the time. The point in the story there is that, is that they said, we're going to build this massive work, a name for ourselves. And in order to see it, God has to come down out of heaven to see it. God's not intimidated by humanity building this tower to, to reach heaven and to knock on the door and say, let us in, we're here, look how awesome humanity is. No, when they're, when they're in the midst of their work and they're saying, this is great and huge, God can't even see it from heaven is the point. He can see it because he knows everything. But it's not that big, that's the point. This is what happens to Egypt. Exodus 3, 7 the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. This is fast forward uh, uh, at least 400 years. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. How, how is this the graciousness of God? When we sin against the Lord, we sin against other people. And people cry out in their hearts, Lord, why is that person able to get away with that? Why did you let me, that person wrong me? Lord, that, that person shouldn't have done that, right? They, this is when, when we sin or when others sin against us, we bring that to the Lord and we, we pray. The Lord doesn't just sit up in heaven like, like some kind of old-timey operator, just like, you know, moving wires around or, or putting judgments in, in little pigeonholes, like destroy that person, destroy this person. No, he knows what's going on and he, he comes and he inspects to see if it is so. He doesn't judge others on the basis, he doesn't judge us on the basis of others' prayers or others' accusations. He comes down to inspect the condition of our soul and to say, yes, that person ought to be judged and punished. How often have we said, oh, that person treated you like that? And, and, and on the basis of somebody else's word, we then just say, I'm going to stay away from that person and we judge them. The Lord doesn't do that. He knows and he inspects and then judges. And that's graciousness. But this level of graciousness comes with a, with a sharp edge because this means that the Lord judges accurately and purely and ultimately, he judges very, very specifically. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word 
they speak. Oh, have you ever said anything, right? Like imagine the cartoon word bubble coming out of your mouth and it's like, these are careless things I'm saying. And then you're like, no, 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 scratch that out. I, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. That's why we said it, because we meant it, because those words were designed to accomplish that purpose when we said them. We may have said them in anger, but we said them. And words are like arrows. They, they cut to the point. They're sharp. They fly fast. They hit. Their meaning is clear. But unlike arrows, you can't go and get them back. They do their damage. Jesus says on the judgment day, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now think about all the things that you've said. Whether it's in the, that little small group of friends or, or out in public, we've, we've said things that we regret. Jesus says this in verse 37, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I know that I myself do not take great confidence from this. I don't think, oh man, if that's the standard, I am good. I think if that's the standard, I'm in trouble. James says, who can control the tongue? Who? It's, it's like a tiny spark that sets an entire forest on fire. The world, the, the tongue is full of poison, James says. Fast forward to the final judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. John, writing, closing out the scripture, says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. These are the records that have been kept of humanity's actions. Are they symbolic? Maybe. But that doesn't mean that there's, there's not going to be some kind of, of standard that we are going to have to give an account for. Are there actual books in heaven being piled up? Is there a book with your name on it? I, I don't know. But I do know that the Lord doesn't forget anything. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This should fill us with fear. We ought to say, thank you, Lord, for not judging me on the basis of what people have said about me. Thank you for judging me on my own merits. But this is not something to be excited about, about being judged by our merits. What books might be on that shelf in heaven? One is the book of creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 50, verse 6, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. You know what we do? We, we pull back in our, in our hearts and in our minds. I might not even get to Abraham this morning. We might be talking about this in two weeks, um, about, about Abraham's intercessory ministry for Sodom and particularly for Lot. We may be talking about this in two weeks. I've designed my sermon to, to break neatly apart should I, I not get there so that I don't have to say, I don't have enough time. I'll be like, I did not intend to have enough time. And so I'll just throw away the second half. I'll actually throw it down the street two weeks. Anyway, um, th think about this. We say things like, how can God judge those who don't know, who have no knowledge, but they do have knowledge? Psalm 50 says this, the heavens declare his righteousness, which means this, you go out there 
And you look up at the stars in the sky, and it's, I think it's better here than New Jersey for looking at stars. It's even better over in Zambia where, where there are no street lights, there is no light pollution. You look up and you are like, wow, heaven is huge. You can see the, the purple behind the stars in, in the different nebula and things. It's amazing. But we look up, and you know what we think? We think so often, we think like, oh, yeah, those are, are, are burning balls of gas that are very, very, very far away. And what we miss is what the Scripture says that we should know. We should look up and say, the God who created those things is there, and he is holy and pure and righteous. The fact that we don't recognize it, that we don't feel it, speaks to our sinful fallenness. Another book on the shelf, the book of conscience. Romans 2.15 speaks about those who've never heard the law of God. They've never read the scriptures. But, but Romans 2.15, Paul says that, that those who do not have the law show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness to them and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I believe it's C.S. Lewis who said that even in cultures where God's word has never been proclaimed, generally before someone steals something, they look either way to see if anybody is watching them. Which means that they know it's wrong to steal. And yet they do it anyway. We may not know all of God's word or know all of God's commandments and have arranged them in such a way where, where we say, I fully understand what righteousness and goodness is and therefore I will, will walk in those ways. But in our hearts and in our conscience, the, the work of the Holy Spirit pounding away, convicting and accusing, like it says in John chapter 16, demonstrates that God put a knowledge of what is good and right and holy in us. We know it. We know it from our birth. Another book on the shelf, the book of the commandments. James, sorry, Romans 3.19 says this, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. When we see the commandments whether it's just the 10 or whether you add the other 623 of the, the commandments that are in the law, what we ought to do is to see them and to say, if that is the standard by which I will be judged, I am in serious trouble. You had this, this feeling, I know I use this example all the time, it actually happened to me this week as the, I'm, I'm heading towards the light, right? Uh, and the light is green and then it turns yellow and you know what yellow means those of you who are young and new drivers it means slow down and stop but, but for many of us who've been driving for many years it means drive very 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 fast right? <laughs> right that's what the yellow light means and that is not right by the way and all who do so are sinning so young children but so I'm like drive very 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 fast right and as I, as I head towards that yellow light it turns red as I'm going through it and I think I have done wrong what do you do? You put the car in reverse and go back through the light? No, that is an equal and opposite reaction, which is also a sin, because you're supposed to drive one direction as you're on the road. This is the thing. You can do nothing to remove that guilt from you. Do you drive to the nearest police station and say, I just ran a red light. They're going to be like... But the guilt is on you because you've done wrong. And all of our sins heap up on us. We say things like... I'm a good person. 
I've not done that or that or that or that. And we, we've got our commands all kind of laid out in front of us. Like if I break this, 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 and this one, then, then that collapses the structure. We're looking at the, the commandments as if they're laid out horizontally on a buffet. But what James says is that the commands are, are laid out vertically like a rope. And we are at one end hanging on that rope suspended over judgment. What does James say? James 2, 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I sin once, the rope is cut, and I fall. Judgment for sin. The book of creation, the book of conscience, the book of commandments, and then finally, we are judged by the book of our actions. Romans 2.13 says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. I sat in church. I listened. I heard the sermons. I heard the pastor and my small group leader and my Sunday school teacher and my mom and my dad say, This is what's right. Walk in this way. But it's not those who hear the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And the fifth book, the book of life, a slimmer volume containing only one thing, not a record of wrongs, not a list of commandments, but just containing names. It says in verse 15 of Revelation 20, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I've had this feeling pressing in on me for a while. You know, they, they say that, that, that if, you, if you put a frog in a pot, right, of boiling water, he'll leap right out. But if you, if you put a frog in a pot of water and you slowly raise the temperature, he won't realize that he's being boiled to death. It's kind of a gruesome image, but there's been this awareness in my mind that that, that is an image that describes what's going on in the United States, in our, in our global culture, but it is, it is the, the, the raising of the temperature is going on in the evangelical church. And, and, and though I do believe in American exceptionalism, I do believe that if I had to be born in any nation in the world, I would be born here at every stage of my life. I would never choose not to be an American. I feel blessed to be born in this country. I think it's the greatest country in the world. But it is a country, and it is in the world, and we are human beings. American exceptionalism and individual means that, that, that we view, this is, this is part of, of our nature as humans, and particularly as Americans, we we think that we are so intellectually smart when we come to our religion and we treat it in some sense as a, a, a source of entertainment. And what we do is we, we look at the buffet of God's commandments and we say, I think that's for today and that's not. Based on what? Based on when it comes down to it, sometimes my personal preference. I don't believe that one day in seven is to be laid aside for 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 the worship of the Lord. Why? Because that would really inconvenience my week because I get most of my stuff done on Sunday. Is that a good basis for rejecting a possible biblical command? Right? I know the Bible says that I shouldn't talk this way or think this way or act this way or engage in this behavior, but you know what? 
That'd be really hard. So I'm just going to get rid of that. And so what I think happens is, is as the temperature rises, the church begins to look more and more like the world. And that means that we are indifferent in our culture often to the condition of the poor and to the alien. We accept, in general, the slaughter of the unborn on a massive level. We celebrate shameful sexual activity and our entertainment choices. We cheer the godless as they parade around on stage singing songs that, that mock the standards of God. We, we, we let ourselves be taken as we watch or read books about stories as things take place. We find ourselves rooting for people who are doing immoral things and we, we parade them there as our heroes, whether that's just in liking stuff on Facebook that ought not to be liked or whether it is in our hearts delighting in the wickedness of others. We, we manifest our, our anger as we harass people who are, are or who we, we talk to on customer service. We're just like, those are not human beings there. You have, you have utterly failed me in, in giving me this product, and therefore I do not need to be polite and kind to you. No, you are, you are less than human. You are a voice coming out of the other end of the telephone. Pa, I'm not talking, by the way, just about y'all, right? <laughs> this, is, this is real-time stuff that happens to me. We, we, we love ourselves and we groom our identity of who we are in this richest, most blessed of all cultures that have ever existed. And what we do as we do that is we do not realize that we are manicuring our hate for God, our defying of his ways, our neglect of prayer, our ignorance of his word, our treating his blessings as something to be taken for granted. And because we feel so blessed, we then look at the judgment of God which is coming and we say, that's kind of an overreaction, don't you think? Somebody sins against God and they're condemned to spend forever and ever and ever in hell. Forever is an awful long time. Doesn't God realize that? Oh, I think he does. And I think that means what's wrong with the equation is our understanding of what sin is. And our understanding of how casually sometimes we approach it. I'll just pray about that later and confess it. Oh, if we could see the purity of God, our hearts would stop when we said those things. We are guilty. My notes say right here, jump the gun. And quit the sermon if you're out of time. So here it is, with, with a, a bunch of time to go. But we're never going to get through Abraham's intercession, which is, I'm so glad because I think it needs to be developed. And I would just, I would just compact it. Some of my favorite Bible verses are there. Romans 3, 9 says this. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The, the idea there being that, that what's, what's being spoken of here is not sin like I did wrong, 
or I refuse to do right. Not that kind of sin. Not sin like when somebody says, you know, you, should, you look like you get dressed in the dark. You know, and I'm just like, I am going to knock you out. You know, that's, that's inner corruption, right? right? Sinfulness rises from within. That's not what's being spoken of. There's a third category of sin, and it's that driving through the red light, and the guilt is on me, and what do I do to get rid of the guilt? I can't. I cannot get rid of it because I'm legally guilty of something. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. We all have this pile of sinful guilt that's on us. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Oh, Abraham said, Lord, if you find 50 people in there thinking, there's got to be 50 righteous people. But then maybe he has this moment of realization. He's like, no, 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 let's go down to 40, right? Or 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Surely there's got to be 10 righteous people. What does the Bible say? There's none righteous, no, not one. The Lord could bring it all the way down to two righteous people. And you know what? The city is still going to be destroyed. Because there's not a single righteous person in there. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is nothing from God's perspective that he looks at a human being and says, that's good enough that I'm going to save them. And this is not after God just kind of looks at humanity in frustration and says, oh, just, just, he's not like, just throw them all away. It's too much to judge them. No, this is after he has carefully inspected and, and logged all the offenses in the books that he says, I've done a thorough search. They've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And when we understand that, when we, see, when we see the darkness of human condition, of the, the condition of our souls and the condition of our guilt, it's then if we put the gospel out on that as if it were a piece of black velvet, the diamond then sparkles all the more brilliantly. This is what the Bible says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God coming into the world means that we are all judged, but a different kind of righteousness has been manifested apart from the the standards of the law. The law and the prophets bore witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you understand what this means? The very righteousness which, which God judges the world, the righteous standard that God sets out that says, all who sin against me must forever and ever and ever be judged and punished for their wickedness. Because the sin against the righteousness of God is extremely grave, right? If you were to pick up an egg right now and throw it at me, please don't do this, right? You know, I might be like, that's not cool. And somebody might be like, what'd you do that for? But there wouldn't be a big deal. But if, 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 if President Obama were passing by outside and somebody threw an egg, trust me, you'd probably wind up with a couple broken bones, right? Because the Secret Service guys would, would pound you, and, and you might wind up like in Guantanamo Bay or something for a couple months. Because, because the punishment is in proportion to the dignity of the one offended. It's not that any sin is small, it's that the infinite majesty of the one which we have sinned against magnifies the sin to a tremendous level. And so the righteousness of God 
which we have stomped on with our sinfulness, is now manifested in a, in a different way. Apart from the law, we are all judged and sentenced by the law, but the righteousness of God comes to humanity through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it says right there in Romans 3, 22. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God, what is the standard by which we enter into heaven and stand in God's presence and say, I am a righteous person, absolute and utter perfection. And no one can do that on their own. We are all judged and condemned by our actions. But it says here, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God says, I sent one man, one person, the second person of the Trinity and fully human to live underneath my law. And you know what? He did it. He did it. He lived it perfectly. And he goes to the cross, taking our sins upon his account. What does 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says? It says, for our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If that weren't in the Bible and you were trying to convince me of it, I'd say it's crazy talk. That God will make us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do it this way? Why did God say, here is a standard that you need to live up to. And, and, and all those who believe I will make righteous. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance or his mercy, he passed over former sins. He said, you know what? I'm not going to destroy every single person the instant that they sin. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let them live. And give them the opportunity to repent and to seek me. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. To show that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and he punishes and sentences all those who violate his law. Because he's just. And there'd be no ground for any human being to say, that's wrong and that person ought to be punished if God's just going to sweep all the sin under the rug. He's not. Many will be judged. But those who flee to him and say, I have sinned, I've, I've broken your commands in these ways. Would you please forgive me? I believe in your truth. I surrender to you. I come to you repentant. God says, I will make you righteous with the righteousness of my son. It's such good news. None of us deserve it. Why does God tell Abraham that he's going to do this? Why does he tell Abraham, I've seen and heard of the sins of Sodom and going down there to judge them. Why does he tell him? Because Abraham's going to be a great and mighty nation and blessing's going to come to him. And he needs to know the way that God works. Listen, Peter says this in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3.10. We're going, to, we're going to close in prayer at the end of this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Yeah, scientists, I believe them, they say that light takes millions and millions of years to get here. It's coming from a, a far distant place. But you know what I think? This is just my personal belief. This doesn't show up in the Bible. I think all the stars are going to go out at one moment. They're just going to go out. It says that they're going to they're be burned up and dissolved. Poof, heaven's just going to blink out all the stars at once. That's what I think. Anyway, that's... You don't have to believe that. God might have a switch somewhere. Anyway, I'm getting into astronomy and kind of making it sound like it's a cartoon. <laughs> Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since this is going to happen, since judgment is going to come, the day of the Lord, what sort of people, Peter says, ought you to be? Since all these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Knowing that judgment is coming, being informed by God that, yes, there will never be another flood of the earth. The whole earth will never again be covered by water, but that does not mean that God will not judge all the created order by fire. Knowing that that is coming, how should we live as Christians each and every day? One, those who do not know Christ and who are convicted of their sins ought to flee to him for righteousness and not try to reform and perfect their lives. And those who've believed in Christ and know that, know that he paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as, snow, white as snow. We ought to then say, I will live in a way that pleases God, knowing that, that my stain has been taken away, that my guilt has been paid for, and that now with the Holy Spirit in me, I can live a life that pleases God as I, as I depend on God and depend on Christ. That's why God tells us about judgment. Not so we can make great big charts and say, the end of the world will be in 2016. It's ridiculous. Don't do that. Repent. Live lives of holiness. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to share this word. Nobody likes to hear that we will be judged. But we also don't like to hear that tax day is coming. And we pay our taxes anyway. Because no one wants to face that kind of judgment. And so hearing of judgment and seeing your gracious and kindness and goodness in giving us a Savior who will deliver us from the wrath that's to come, may we not look at you and accuse you of being wicked or of having too high standards, but thank you for, with those standards, giving us the way of escape. We pray that we would humble ourselves before you and receive the gift of forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that having received it, and if we've received it, that we would then say each and every day, Lord, how can I depend on you and trust you and walk in a way that pleases you, walking in holiness and righteous and justice? We pray that you would make it so in us, knowing that we cannot do it on our own. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.